Hello, and welcome to AARC Perspectives, where we talk with members of the respiratory care community and learn about their experiences caring for patients and building the profession. I am Doug Lair, Chief Operating Officer at the American Association for Respiratory Care, and I will serve as your host for today's episode. Since 1947, the AARC has been leading the effort to advance the respiratory care profession and promote high-quality, cost-effective, patient-centric respiratory care. The respiratory care profession is ever-growing and evolving thanks to dedicated respiratory therapists around the world. Today's guest on the AARC Perspectives podcast is Mr. Andrew Klein. Andrew is an adult clinical specialist at Rush University Medical Center, where he's served in that role for the last seven years. Andrew is a nationally recognized speaker and AARC clinical preceptor and is a distinguished chest educator with the American College of Chest Physicians. Ladies and gentlemen, enjoy my conversation with Andrew. Hey, good afternoon, Andrew. How are you today? I'm great, Doug. Uh, Thanks for having me on. Hey, welcome to AARC Perspectives Podcast. So before we get started into the um, into the podcast and the and this interview, I was hopeful that we could just start off maybe by you sharing with the audience uh, a little bit more about who you are. We we obviously provided an intro, but um, great way to to uh, start the conversation. Just get to lo- get to know you a little bit better. Sure, Doug. Uh, so, as you mentioned, my name is uh, Andy Klein. Uh, I've been a respiratory therapist for a little over 17 years. Uh, I've been at Rush for almost eight of those years uh, and uh, moved to Chicago in 2013 and uh, mostly just wanted to see if I was uh, good enough to survive in, in that kind of environment. I came from a kind of a smaller venue and, you know, kind of felt like I wasn't uh, doing as much as I could be. And so I, you know, looked around and I, you know, ended up at Rush and, you know, been there ever since. It's been, uh, been quite a ride. So Rush is uh, is one of the the leading healthcare institutions in the country. They were you, the hospital was really on the cutting edge as it as it related to um, COVID nineteen. You got your master's degree at Rush, and now you work there as a clinical specialist. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. I came in with a with a bachelor's degree that I actually uh, earned in uh, 2011 with Shauna Strickland, uh, who I know is part of the ARC family, and uh, learned so much from her. Uh, and she was the program director at the University of Missouri, uh, and I did the uh, the online program with her, and uh, was able to uh, was lucky enough to form a relationship with her that I still uh, have today, and it's been uh, it's been great. She's been uh, a great mentor, great educator for for me. And uh, that's where I kind of entered Rush with that background. And uh, shortly after starting there, I I started into their respiratory master's program and completed that in 2017 uh, under uh, David Vines and Brady Scott. And uh, yeah, it's been it's been uh, fantastic. Somehow I sense that Shauna will be listening to this podcast with a big smile on her face. So so, Andy, uh, so you are a clinical specialist at Rush. Can you tell us a little bit more about what that job title is and, and what you do? 
so the clinical specialist role, and I've I've talked to a couple other people that that have this role. I think uh, you know it means a little something different at different facilities. But I'll I'll tell you a little bit about my personal experience in this role, and that I'm a clinical resource uh, for both the respiratory staff and the non-respiratory staff, so physicians, nurses, any any other uh, you know people on the team that that have respiratory questions. Uh, so I do some education. Uh, the role at my hospital actually carries some administrative. Um, tasks with it. Uh, so I also have uh, mentees, direct reports that I do their evaluations every year. We meet and discuss their goals, that type of thing. I sit in on interviews uh, for any new employees. And then in the event that there needs to be disciplinary action of some of some sort, uh, I am also part of that, especially as it pertains to the uh, group of people that are my direct report. So it's kind of a little bit of, uh, I would say it's, uh, if I had to, if I had to break it down it's 75% clinical and 25% administrative and so it's it just uh, it depends on the day uh, sometimes uh, what uh, my day-to-day is but I can tell you that you know uh, and I'm sure a lot of people listening can relate to the staffing issue that a lot of places face uh, so I think that um, you know one of the things that I've had to do a lot lately is jump in and take a uh, ICU staffing assignment you know because we just haven't had enough people to fill all the staffing holes uh, uh, recently. So again, I, I'm sure a lot of places, uh, you know, suffer from that as well. So Andrew, when we think of the, the job title clinical specialist, you said about 25% of your day is administrative. That that means you're taking care of patients roughly 75% of the time. Can you talk a little bit about the the clinical side of your duties and what what those duties really entail as it relates to, to the, the clinical specialist job title? So as, as you may or may not know, Rush is a uh, kind of a destination for a lot of people that are. I, I don't. I don't want to. I don't want to phrase this in a way that that uh, degrades anyone. But there's a lot of hospitals that get to a point with a patient where they um, they feel like they've reached the limit either of their of their clinical abilities or of their resources um, to treat that patient. Uh, maybe there. Maybe it's a place that isn't familiar with prone positioning. Maybe it's a place that doesn't have ECMO as a uh, as a possibility. Uh, those kind of things. And we get a lot of those patients uh, from other facilities. So I, I think a lot of my clinical role is when we get some of those challenging patients to work with my staff and the physicians and nurses on what our plan is going to be, uh, what ha, what have, has been tried already, uh, what do we think we need to do with this patient based on what we're seeing. Um, so just basically to be that clinical resource and to help uh, everybody on the staff uh, just kind of, I guess, understand the respiratory side of, of what's happening with that patient, what I think we need to do with the ventilator. Is this patient a, a candidate for proning? Um, is it is it time to consider ECMO? Is this patient even a candidate for ECMO? Um, those kinds of things. And then, um, you know, if it's not one of those patients, uh, you know, I'm a resource for the staff, maybe the staff, hey, I don't know what this waveform is on the ventilator. Um, something, something wonky seems to be happening. Can you come check this out? Sure. And then we'll talk through what I think we're seeing. Those kinds of things are pretty common clinically. If somebody falls behind and, you know, they need to transport some to CT scan, for example, I'll jump in, grab that patient, take them to CT scan um, so that that therapist in the unit can finish what they're working on. So it's sort of a mixed bag. I'm sort of that uh, 
uh, that extra set of hands as well as um, as well as that clinical resource for those more challenging patients that you know maybe we don't see a lot of or maybe we have to dig into the literature and say okay you know is there something we're not seeing is there something someplace else has tried with a patient like this COVID was a great example of that uh, you know when we saw in the beginning you know obviously we were all feeling our way but then as we got a little further along you know there was some data out there that we could refer to so sometimes you know I was the guy to say you know what hang on let me let me check I think I remember reading that somebody was doing something with this that type of thing is kind of my role so Andy when um, when I think of clinical specialists uh, especially those in other institutions outside of Russia I know a lot of people who hold those job titles work in very specific sectors or, or sections of the hospital maybe it's the ICU or the NICU or the emergency department are you restricted to a certain area of the hospital or or are you a specialist throughout the hospital? So that's a good question, Doug. I think um, that it's important and something that we do at our hospital is uh, we pretty much separate the adults from the neonatal pediatric world. So they have their own clinical specialists on their side um, that basically have the same, uh, I guess, reverse uh, job description as I do. So they do those same kinds of things in the neopeds world. Um, I would say the majority of my time is spent in the adult ICU, but there's the occasional situation that happens on the general floors, an RRT, a rapid response situation uh, that I'll that I'll go and uh, I'll offer my thoughts. Um, and as a uh, as a clinical specialist, I also. Uh, I guess I didn't say this in my day-to-day. Um, typically, when I'm there, I also carry the charge phone. Um, so, therefore, I carry the just the, the garden variety supervisory tasks, some charge paperwork, um, you know, some staffing stuff uh, goes along with that. And so... Uh, the, the charge person is uh, supposed to attend every rapid response and every code situation, regardless of where it is in the hospital, uh, with the exception being if it's a neonatal pediatric patient and then the, their own, you know, experts would uh, would attend those. But so, yeah, it's it's just basically a, sort of a, a mixed bag, I guess, of, you know, what can I offer the situation with my, you know, background and expertise. And sometimes, you know, I have a, I have a pretty, a pretty solid answer for some of those things. And sometimes we got to put our heads together and and uh, maybe do some digging and uh, and you kind of figure it out together so that's kind of my role is to sort of uh, I guess facilitate that information and and try to you know channel that towards the patient and in the hopes of uh, improving their outcome sure so if you are one of the lead clinical resources in the organization. I would assume that the expectation is that you are on the cutting edge of clinical practice guidelines, NIH guidelines, COVID guidelines. I would assume that's a safe bet. Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, it's it's important, like you said, Doug, to keep up on all of those things. And I think that you know, all of those resources are important because um, there's a lot of organizations that are um, tackling these problems and these clinical challenges that we have. And I think that, you know, you need to be open to uh, all of those resources. So, I mean, uh, for myself, you know, I, I carry professional memberships with uh, American College of Chest Physicians, Society of Critical Care Medicine, obviously the American Association of Respiratory Care. And so uh, I am able to utilize all those resources um, 
as as needed. And so again, that came in really handy with COVID because uh, pretty quickly the American College of Chest Physicians and the Society of Critical Care Medicine, along with the National Institutes of Health, uh, all came out with guidelines. And so not only utilizing those individual guidelines, but kind of pulling from all three um, what we needed to improve our practices uh, at Rush uh, became a really important factor, I think. Yeah, so understanding research, how to read it, uh, that's all exceptionally important. Um, so as it relates to being a clinical specialist, and I would imagine there's some people on the, on the uh, podcast today who are listening who are probably saying, wow, that would be a really cool position to have in my institute. If that was the case, and and they would say, Andy, what's the biggest benefit to the organization by having a clinical specialist? What do you think that, how would you answer that question? I think that's a great question. And I, I, I've given that a lot of thought, I think, because I, I, my organization where I started my career did the first 10 years didn't really have a formal clinical specialist role and looking back I feel like I kind of did some of the tasks I described uh, as the uh, as one of the charge therapists at that institution but we hadn't formalized it into a into a job role but I, but I think that to your question, what does it bring to the organization? I think that the staff having a resource and having somebody on your staff, as you just mentioned, that understands, you know, how to interpret research, understands what makes good research versus, um, you know, versus questionable research in terms of do we make a practice change based on this, um, and somebody that you know is familiar with, you know, how policies are constructed um, and things like that. I think think that that brings to your organization um, sort of a cohesiveness to your department and a way to channel your practice into what's best for the patient because I, I can tell you that at my previous job and maybe some people listening um, sort of feel this way as well, it was a little scattered, you know, depending on which doctor was on, what their personal biases were. It wasn't always grounded in what I would believe to be the uh, the latest and the strongest research. Um, even though I think we did the best we could, um, I think that having someone there that was that person that we talked about maybe could have channeled some of that, maybe could have uh, been that resource to remind them, hey, you know, that study came out a couple months ago that said this, and, you know, they had pretty good data, and, you know, that's something we could maybe utilize with this patient population, and, you know, there just really wasn't any of that, and I think that having that resource to remind the medical team as well as having somebody to tell, you know, the, the respiratory staff, because, you know, I think that every staff that I've been a part of and you know all my friends in the uh, in the profession that are part of staffs. I mean, they'll tell you you have your you have your standout therapist, you have your really good therapist, and then you have your therapists that are sort of you know outside of those groups that you know are are trying to be brought up to that level. And I think that the clinical specialist plays a big role in that as well. You know, to work with those uh, work with those people that are trying to get up to that to that really good therapist level, and uh, you know maybe don't have the firmest grasp on waveforms or don't have the firmest grasp on vent modes and when to switch from one mode to another and those kind of things. Having somebody that just has a deep understanding of all those things to be that resource for the respiratory staff can really elevate the respiratory staff as a whole and make them a more valuable resource for the rest of the medical team. So you had mentioned so 
something about policies and things of that nature. Is that a role that you play as well in help crafting your your clinical policies uh, in the in at Rush? So it is, um, and the way we do it at Rush, we have a one of our uh, one of our staff educators actually runs the team, and then we actually have uh, staff members that are on the policy procedure committee. I happen to be one of those staff members, but we also have people that are clinical specialists that sit on that committee that are able to uh, work on policies. And I think it's a great uh, I think it's a great thing to uh, to have in your in your tool belt, uh, even if you haven't elevated yourself to the clinical specialist role just to understand what needs to be in those policies and what what types of things need to have a policy attached and um, maybe how to modify those as the as the new research comes out which we've had to do a little bit uh, recently so um, I think that you know if if someone were to be a clinical specialist I think that would be an important sort of component to that I think that they would want to be involved in their department's uh, policy and procedure um, you know whether it was a committee or whether they were just involved somehow um, as one of the people that worked on those. I think that that's an important thing because they they would be on the front line, so to speak, to see are we doing everything the way that we should be. Um, you know, and if our policy doesn't reflect that, you know, how do we make sure that our policy reflects that, regardless of whether it was because of a change in the in the research that has just come out or because maybe we were behind to begin with. You know, I think that clinical specialist would, um, if it were a new role in an organization. I think that's one of the first things, if it were me, that I would probably tackle is, are all of our policies that relate to our practice aligned with best practices currently? Let's get that squared away, and then let's figure out a process as to how we're going to update these as things change to make sure that that's a fluid um, process. Yeah, that's great that you have a seat at the table. I know many institutions, maybe the director or the manager or a small supervisory team might be responsible for policy and procedure uh, review and updates, but the fact that Rush engages not only you, but a team of, of clinicians in the department is a great way to keep everybody everybody engaged, so that's fantastic. Andy, you talk about, when I hear you talk about this role, it's like, wow, who would not want to serve in a clinical specialist role at, at Rush? But I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm guessing it's not all candy and sunshines, uh, or are there any drawbacks to the position? <laughs> well, um, as you as you probably gotten from my other answers, I'm pretty uh, pretty happy in my current role, and I and I feel like it suits me, and I feel like I bring uh, some things to the table. So I feel like it's a mutually beneficial uh, relationship with uh, with the department, and the organization. But I will tell you that it is a lot of work, um, inside and outside of work, even beyond the stuff that I do outside of Rush, uh, I can tell you that as a clinical specialist and as a person who, uh, as I mentioned, as part of my job, I have to do uh, some some um, evaluations and things like that. So being that resource to the staff sometimes is a 24-7 uh, undertaking. And so, you know, I'm, I'm constantly getting, you know, text messages and calls from the staff like, hey, you know, how are we, how are we supposed to run Heliox in this situation? Or um, I got, I got one the other night, um, you know, about a, about a nitric setup that they didn't understand and they were sending me pictures and I'm like, hang on, that piece doesn't go with that piece. Hang on. So uh, just things like that. And uh, emails, 
meetings, um, that stuff never stops. So if you really, as you mentioned, Doug, you know, staying on top of everything really is sort of the key. So in my estimation, if you really want to be the best person at this job, I'm not saying don't ever take a vacation. I'm not saying don't ever cut loose. But I would say that a lot of your time is taken up by thinking about things that are happening at the organization, answering emails, attending meetings, even on your days off. Virtually has been uh, has been a nice uh, nice addition to our our repertoire. COVID kind of gave us that. If it gave us anything good, which you know you could make a make a case we really didn't get anything good out of COVID, but I think we did get a couple. You know we got really good at proning. Um, virtual meetings became something of a norm. So then you know if you have a day off, at least you can you know attend a meeting in your pajamas. You don't have to get yourself up and together and dress and drive in like you may have had to prior to that. So, but I would say the biggest drawback is really just it takes a lot of your time, takes a lot of your energy, even when you're not at work. But it's 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 also very rewarding uh, in that in that respect because you get to have your you get to have your head in everything that's happening. So I think that that's uh, a, a blessing and a curse, so to speak. Yeah. So I I know that if there are people that are out there um, listening. And they they say, "Wow, I'd I'd really love to be a clinical specialist." We all know what the the attributes and the core competencies are of just a regular respiratory therapist, but I would imagine that the that those competencies and key attributes probably are somewhat heightened for a uh, clinical specialist role. What what would those be if somebody were to ask you? Well. That, that's a, I think that's a pretty good question. I think some of that depends on your organization. I mean, what's needed at your organization? Where are the weaknesses there that the clinical specialist might need to fill? Um, but in general, I would say uh, that you need to have a deep understanding of mechanical ventilation, a deep understanding of critical care. I think that you need to be, in, in my, this is my personal estimation, but I think that you need to have uh, just a natural curiosity every time you see something you don't know, you have that sort of itch that you want to know, um, and and I, I've just always had that, and I think the people that I've been around that are really good at this job have that natural curiosity of, hey, I don't understand why that worked. I think it's great that it worked. I need to know why that worked and why what we tried before didn't work type of thing. Why did that medication work when the other one didn't? That type of thing. Why did, why did uh, lowering the eye time help here? You know, because it was counterintuitive to what you would think you would want to do with the eye time there. Why did that help? You know, those kinds of things. And I think that if somebody just always has those uh, questions on their mind, that's a, that's a great attribute because I think that the, the most important thing I personally have learned is that there is so much to know, even with what's already out there, and every day more gets put out there that you need to know, and there's no way anybody can know it all. So understanding resources, understanding um, where to find information, and just having that natural curiosity of wanting to know the answer when you don't. I think is uh, is a is a, a good set of qualities to start with as a somebody that's considering you know uh, moving into a clinical specialist role. Andy, when when you started at Rush, was there a clinical specialist opportunity 
and already in existence for you, or is this something that was created after you after you started? So they had done um, a, a pretty major overhaul of the of the construction of the department prior to me getting there, and they had created these positions. Um, and the original people that had the positions were in them. They had done this uh, maybe I want to say three or four years. Uh, I might be wrong on that timeline, but it was relatively soon uh, prior to me getting there. And so, um, so yes, there were people in that role, but they were the original people in that role, and they were I. I think where you're going with that is they were still trying to figure out what their role was. I mean, it was sort of defined, but but settling into that, okay, you know, what can we, you know, what gaps can we fill where, you know, let's ebb a little here and flow a little there. They were still trying to figure out that whole thing. And so they were able to teach me some things uh, about the role, and then the rest, you know, has sort of evolved, I guess, since I've been there. Um, and there have been several people that have come and gone from that role in the last uh, almost eight years since I've been there. And I think that you know it's it's uh, consistently evolving you know depending on what happens that we need to you know take part in you know there's been different things uh, that we've had to form ad hoc committees and different things like that the clinical specialists have had to be flexible and jump in on those things and offer uh, you know sort of a respiratory perspective on those uh, hospital-wide uh, initiatives and things like that so I think that's a that's a big thing too with the role is just you know the flexibility of being able to you know jump in and, and help out in in areas where you know something comes up and you're like man we didn't we didn't you know think that was going to happen so you know we better uh you know try to figure out how we're going to as a organization deal with this i think a good example of that is skin breakdown we've had to, we had a, a sort of a issue with skin breakdown as it related to uh respiratory devices uh prone positioning things like that uh so we had to um essentially hurry up and get some uh, people together to suggest some things that were potentially going to be effective. So uh, we got a committee together where respiratory wound, nursing, um, you know, some administrators uh, got onto uh, a group and then we had to hurry up and, okay, let's figure out, you know, what should we be doing? Okay, cool. We agree on this. Then, of course, we had to bring this back to our department, change our practices on some things. So as of probably two years ago, our our practice when we evaluated like say a non-invasive ventilation patient was X. Now with all the skin breakdown and stuff, there's a whole nother part of the assessment that we've had to implement. There's new charting. We've had to make modifications to our epic rows. All of this happened um, and had you know direct respiratory involvement. Um, and a lot of that was our clinical specialists either being directly involved in the committee or certainly getting those practices implemented down through through you know the the respiratory staff all the way down to the last therapist uh, so that we could implement that practice housewide as quickly and as seamlessly as possible. So those things pop up and the clinical specialists have to have that role of, okay, we're going to make sure that this information gets disseminated, the whys, the why questions get answered, and the staff starts to practice those new uh, techniques or those new um, those new uh, situations. What What's your interdisciplinary involvement at the hospital? but I imagine it's significant. Uh, well, so for myself personally, uh, I have been primarily on night shift uh, most of the time that I've been there. Uh, so I do have some interdisciplinary involvement um, sort of indirectly, uh, but my colleagues on day shift have uh, 
have a lot more interdisciplinary involvement. They do sit on a lot of hospital committees, a uh, good example being the skin committee. Uh, but like an example for myself, we have a prone positioning committee that was formed right before COVID to try to implement um, some easy proning um, things that we could disseminate through both the respiratory staff and the nursing staff because we knew we were going to have an uh, extremely high number of patients that were going to need to be proned in pretty short order. Uh, we didn't really have a process in place, so we formed a committee. There were administrators, doctors, respiratory therapists, um, nurses, uh, wound care, uh, PT, all on this committee. Um, we still have the committee today where we're still sort of, uh, obviously the process is pretty solidly in place now, but we're just tweaking some things here and there. But that's a that's an example of an interdisciplinary uh, committee that, I, that I'm pretty involved with. And again, my colleagues on days have a few more of those things that they're more involved in because there's just more presence on days. Um, and so I think that you know, uh, with those things, I think it's important that we have that involvement. But like for myself, my colleagues on days may go and sit at a meeting with one of those committees, but then it's still part of my job to make sure that, because it is a 24-7 operation, to make sure that the uh, therapists uh, on night shift, uh, you know, practice those same, um, you know, those the, relate to those same practices as they, as they do on day shifts. So, you know, if one of my colleagues goes to an interdisciplinary meeting and the decision's made, we're going to change this practice or we're going to do this or we're going to start charting this every so often, then that immediately falls to me to make sure that, that the staff uh, adjusts their practice to reflect that. So, Andy, we're, we're coming up on uh, near the end of, of the podcast, but I, I do have a couple of additional questions before we wrap up. This is a two-pronged question, and Part of the question you may not be able to fully answer, I, I know that you can the second. If a manager or um, a department director were listening today and said, Annie, I would really, really love to start a clinical specialist um, job position in my department, how, how would I go about doing that? Or do you have any recommendations for me to do that? And maybe that's a better question for, for who you report to in department leadership. But the next question is is kind of part two to that is that if you are a respiratory therapist and say, wow, Andy, this sounds so, so cool. I would love to do what you do. Um, do you have any words of wisdom for them? So first start with uh, the the department director who may be listening and then the respiratory therapist who may want to move into this role. In terms of starting a clinical specialist, um I guess starting a clinical specialist position within the department, I think I think you were pretty accurate. I I think that the the financial aspect of that is probably over my head, um, but I think that one of the things you could do as a director is to identify some of those clinical gaps in your department. Maybe you recognize that your therapists aren't the best uh, at understanding modes of mechanical ventilation. Maybe they're not the best at you know uh, dealing with a critical patient and understanding you know, how the whole, you know, septic shock process works and how that relates to how you're going to run the ventilator and just things like that and identify some of those gaps. And then I guess uh, you could look at those and say, okay, I think if we had someone here that could help us, 
you know, bring us to a level and maybe fill some of those gaps, I think that would be something they could uh, assign value to uh, based on what they really need in their organization in terms of whether or not they could create the FTE and um, uh, get that actually filled financially. I know my, my boss has talked to, to us a lot about the aspect of, you know, creating FTEs and moving around FTEs and, you know, the financial part of it. And I can tell you that's pretty over my head just because I've just never had much experience in it other than to hear them talk. But uh, but I know that there are people that are that are wizards at that. And maybe these directors that are that are listening are wizards at the moving the money around and stuff, and they could make that happen. But I think really it's just a matter of identifying some clinical gaps and uh, determining what, you know, what would best you know, be suited to fix those. And again, if I, I guess if it were me, if I had a staff that I walked around and I've been part of some of these staffs, um, that I walked around and said, man, there's some good people here, but they just don't, there's just so many things that I wish that they knew, you know, and uh, that I wish someone had taught them along the way or that, you know, maybe they're, maybe the practice at that facility doesn't allow them to, you know, uh, ex- expand their knowledge base because the doctors just don't want them to, to, understand anything because the doctors want to run the show. Uh, There's a variety of reasons why those gaps might exist, but I can tell you that at Rush, when they made those changes, you know, the doctors started to realize what a value it was to have a respiratory staff that understood those things and how much of their time that freed up to go do doctor-level things. And not that running a ventilator can't be a doctor-level thing, it certainly is, but knowing that there was a group that could handle that pretty much to the level that a doctor could, that allowed them to be freed up to see more patients, to do more procedures that that time would have had to have been spent at the bedside dealing with the ventilator stuff. And I might argue that respiratory therapists probably can manage ventilators better than a physician. Just saying. Yeah, you know, you, I, you you might not be wrong there, but, you know, we, we, we work with some pretty smart doctors. I'm sure all the people listening have some doctors in their organization that are, you know, are, are really exceptional as well that, that, uh, that do a great job. So I, I didn't want to undermine any of them. But, yeah, I mean, I think we work pretty hard to know everything there is to know uh, about mechanical ventilation um, where we can. So... And then, uh, Doug, moving on to your other question real quick, what would I, what would I, I think your question was, what would I say to someone who wanted to be a clinical specialist? I, I guess I would say to them, and I, and I'm thinking back to my journey to where I, where I am now, I would say what, what really helped me get to where I am, uh, I, I would cite a couple of things. I would say, number one, uh, are you are the type of person that, uh, within your organization, uh, just sort of is the de facto resource? If somebody can't figure something out, are you the person that they already call, uh, even if there's not a formal position in place to dictate that? Are you somebody that uh, wants to know if you're doing everything you can? Are you somebody that whenever something new comes out, you want to read it? Uh, are you somebody that picks things up pretty quickly when something new comes out? If there's a, a new mode of ventilation or if there's a new ventilator that comes out, are you somebody that, that thinks of high-level questions to ask the rep and things like that? And then the most important thing I think that I would convey to anybody is finding somebody that you know, does the things that you want to do uh, to to have as a mentor. And I've been lucky enough, and I'm gonna I'm gonna shamelessly name drop here. Uh, I've been lucky enough to have a, a guy by the name of Brady Scott uh, that's been really involved in my career the last uh, seven or eight years. And I can honestly tell you that getting from where I was to where I am now, uh, he deserves a, a lot of the credit. And I think that having a resource like that, and maybe you have one already in your organization that's just top of the line and you just want to be like them and that kind of thing. And if you don't, 
I think that if you um, now that now that COVID, uh, hopefully, knock on some wood here, uh, is is sort of fading into the background, and we're we're being allowed to get together again to share information at conferences, I think that. Again, looking back at my journey, when I started regularly attending these professional conferences, I have a network of people now that I can honestly really call close colleagues and some of them might even call friends that we, you know, will text, we'll email, we'll share information, and I would consider all of them mentors as well. So if you don't have uh, somebody in your organization that you can really like latch on to and use as a mentor, or maybe you don't have anybody there that wants to do that for you, maybe they're, you know, just not that type of personality, I promise you that there are uh, a whole network of people who would be happy to be that resource for you to answer questions, to help you on a path. You know, I, I don't know that I'd put myself in that level of the people that I'm talking about, but I mean, uh, anybody who would want to reach out to me, I can, you know, at least help you understand my journey and I can answer some questions that maybe I've had answered for me. Um, but in any event, there's mentors out there and there's people that would take their time and and help you along that path uh, if, you, if you aren't lucky enough like me to have somebody that worked in the same building that you can use as that resource. But I think for me personally, that's been the the biggest uh, factor of getting me from where I was to where I am is just having somebody to direct my energy to uh, to tell me you know what I needed to get better at what I was already okay at you know those kinds of things and just to be that that person to ask questions to and 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 mold yourself after and that kind of thing and to be open and receptive to that feedback is going to be critical that's a great point Doug uh, you and I were talking off off air about that and I I think um, for me personally that's something that I've had to learn that I'm still learning um, to, to be able to take feedback because you know I was I was sort of big man on campus at my at my last job and uh, you know you, you you get a little bit of a, an ego that develops with that right or wrong and uh, you know then when somebody tells you, hey, maybe you're not as good at this as you think you are, uh, sometimes that can be hard to hear. But I think if you want to get better, you have to be able to hear that. And I think that uh, having a mentor that you're able to hear that from is so important because there, there's still people in my life that will tell me something and I'll be like, dude, you don't know what you're talking about, you know, because that trust hasn't been built. But I think having a mentor that can tell you things that you're able to hear, you know, despite maybe not being great at, at uh, taking that feedback, uh, to be able to take it at least from that, that mentor personality, I think is so important. That's a great point, Doug. So, Andy, as we wrap up, just one more question, and that question is, are there any questions that I did not ask that I should have? Um, I, not that I can think of, Doug. I think uh, I think we... we I mean, covered the role pretty well. I I, I think uh, if anybody else has questions after they listen to this uh, to this podcast, um, they're more than welcome to reach out to me. Uh, my contact information should be uh, somewhere there at the AARC. If somebody has a specific question, I'm more than happy to answer. As I said, I, I don't think I'd put myself anywhere near the level of a Brady Scott or a or a Shauna Strickland or a Keith Lamb or some of these other people that I that I have as mentors. But if if I can be that resource for somebody, I'm more than happy to do that. If they hear this and something speaks to them, so is there an email address that you'd care to share for people to reach out if they have questions? Absolutely, Doug. Sorry. Um, uh, my so my my work email is uh, uh, just uh, Andrew underscore Klein K L E I N at Rush Edu, and then my personal email is all lowercase Andy R R T one at gmail dot com, and you can 
reach out to me at either of those. Um, and again, more ha- more than happy to answer questions, and more than happy to try to you know help uh, anybody that wants to uh, head along the path to clinical specialist because I think it's a underutilized role, and I think that a lot of organizations and a lot of therapists could could benefit. Andy, thanks so much for joining ARC Perspectives podcast today. It was a pleasure speaking with you. Most importantly, thank you for all you do. Uh, thank you for what you do uh, in taking care of our patients. I know that Rush was at the tip of the spear when it came to, to uh, leading respiratory care as it relates to, to taking care of COVID patients, especially with proning. And uh, just want you to know that while you may not always hear it, uh, we appreciate everything that you do. Uh, thank you so much. Appreciate it, Doug. Thanks for having me on, and it's uh, it's been an honor to meet you as well. Absolutely, and, and ladies and gentlemen, thanks for listening. And just remember, when you can't breathe, nothing else matters. Have a great day, everyone. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to AARC Perspectives. Be sure to check out our show notes page for information about today's episode, as well as links to our other podcast episodes. Be sure to know when our next episode airs by subscribing to our podcast. Until next time, my friends, keep on supporting the respiratory therapy profession.